Hello and welcome to episode 211 of the Washed Up Emo podcast. I am Tom Mullen from washedupemo.com. Today on the podcast, we welcome John Dugan from Chisel, which we talk extensively about. We're about to do some reunion shows for Numero Group and some reissues through that label, and it's some classic 90s that you might have heard, but crossed over into many genres and is worth a listen. So um, one that I didn't realize happened um, when I was doing this podcast is that people thought this band was emo. And what's interesting is that this band is really close to my heart too. And I never really put the connection together, yet I'm connected with this band in a very real way. Um, I found this band through John's younger brother, Mike. And Mike was a freshman the same time I was on campus and someone on our hall said, hey, someone down there likes weird music too. So I walked down to his room. The first record that Mike played for me was Chisel. Became fast friends and ended up seeing Chisel uh, a couple years later in uh, 97 with Karate at a house show. And little did we know that that was kind of the end of the band soon after, and that'd be the end of it. Years later, you know, I've spoken to John through the years, uh, various musical endeavors that he's done or family functions where I'd see the family. Full circle, it's just really rad to have John on to talk about Chisel and the many musical things that he's done over the years. And we talk about his experience with Revolution Summer in D.C., Amanda McKay recommending he buy an album that went on to change history, his time at the City Paper, and the opportunities um, that Chisel brought, you know, about the post-Nirvana boom of labels trying to sign the band. And we even talk about Fall Out Boy and the renewed interest in Chisel. So thank you to the Patreon supporters. You guys keep this going and alive. If you want to support, you can go to patreon.com slash washedupemo. One dollar and you can hang out with the Discord and bug me all day. Lastly, Double Elvis, our fantastic podcast network. Thank you to them for their support. Learn about their award-winning podcast, not mine, at doubleelvis.com. This is episode 211 of the Washed Up Emo podcast with John Dugan from Chisel. Hey, it hits even here when I'm alone with you and my headphones are cool it would be But if every kid was me then we'd all stay starstruck I'd go home alone uh, Ian told me to do this, Ian Mackay So state your name, the date, and then the location for me My name, uh, John Dugan uh, The date is Thursday, January 12th, 2023 and I am in Chicago, Illinois, the Logan Square neighborhood. Nice. You're kind of doing like a library of Congress <laughs> of, you know, underground. Totally. Punk of the 90s I, and the aughts, I guess. I got, st- I got a stern talking to from Ian because I didn't start out with doing that with him when I sat down with him. <laughs> I could totally see that. That sounds like some, some excellent advice he would give you in a haranguing way that yes would, so you wouldn't forget it yeah. exactly and i haven't um i think it's worth sort of mentioning um you know how we sort of connected and it started in school i was at a college in in the south and a kid yelled down the hall and said there's someone else down the hall that likes weird music like you and i walked over <laughs> right. and it was mike and your 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 younger brother and went in and 
one of the first things we talked about was Chisel. Um, because I asked him what stuff he was into and what things he and he played 8 a.m. all day. I think that honestly, that first time I walked into his room and we ended up chatting about records and being friends ever since. And so it is fun to talk to you now in different lives and different time periods um, about that band. Um, I had the pleasure of seeing you guys on that karate tour in, in 97. And so, yeah, I just think it's 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 really fun. And then now you've got this thing happening again where you, you're coming back together to play. Um, how did that feel? Um, feel, you know, having people sort of reach out and want to hear about you guys again. I think the funny thing about it is that folks have been expressing an interest in reissuing our records, like from the moment that, you know, within a year of them coming out or the band splitting up. So, um, it wasn't it wasn't sort of totally out of the blue you know people started um asking me ab- about reissuing the records you know even in like 98 99 um so i always thought you know there would be some sort of interest and then um you know i knew ken um from numero just kind of from around uh chicago and being sort of in the music world of Chicago and he obviously was very much aware of Chisel and so you know he and I probably talked about it um 10 10 years ago or maybe even more wow um about reissuing records so and then I didn't really think about it that much until um I think it was Chris Norborg from Chisel who's sort of you know, maybe this might have been like three years ago, started, you know, just kind of put um, the idea out there, you know, that if we're, if we're going to reissue the records or, you know, reissue Set You Free in particular, that we might want to do it around the 25th anniversary and, you know, probably should get on that. And then it kind of took off from there. And, you know, I kind of knew that Numero had some, you know, they had obviously, they, they, started doing some um punk uh reissues by that point so i kind of knew okay this might be something that they might be interested in um so yeah i mean it kind of came together really easily except that i think (laughs) just we we spent two years talking about all sorts of details that we you know um were concerned about or you know just we're just trying to picture how things would play out and um in the end you kind of work you know you kind of work out those details you know when you have to right i mean you right you kind of start making decisions on on what um you know the record is going to include and um you know and then the playing shows thing um came up and everybody was into it so yeah, I mean, I think the funny thing is, you know, not the funny thing, but the thing that surprised me in a way is just that it's just really fun to sort of reconnect and like, you know, give some time to these friendships that we had, you know, like dating back to, um, you know, the early 90s. So like that there's still those guys are just, you know, still great guys. And we all sort of relate in very similar way. Um to the way we did, you know, back in the day, but, you know, probably, um, as, as more 
you know, fully formed humans at this point. Um, but yeah, so that's just been, it's been really nice in a lot of ways. And and I think, you know, from my perspective, I always thought the record should have gotten a little more attention. The band in general, I thought deserved more attention. So, you know, that's, it, it makes a lot of sense to me, you know, to try to put it out there again, <laughs> see if there's another generation that's going to get it, you know? What was DC like when Set You Free was recorded and also came out? Yeah, I mean, Set You Free, so we... um we had, you know, made a day all day and kind of like a, a project studio and, and, you know, that sort of had a really cool raw sound and kind of captured where we were at. Um, you know, good snapshot of like, like the band sort of just flourishing creatively. Um, and we, you know, had gotten in the habit of touring on our own and we would team up with other bands and we, we were really lucky that like Velocity Girl and, Fugazi asked us to tour with them. We we did some tours with those bands, so that was great. Um, and I think by '96, we we also managed to tour out west, and so we we kind of did like as close to a national tour as we ever did. I mean, we didn't go everywhere, but um, we got to the west coast, and then we came back that fall, and it just felt like okay, what's next? You know, we we were you know kind of starting to play again on the east coast um you know and we had we definitely had some new material and ted was writing a lot of new songs we were incorporating a couple of chris's songs in our set at that point um and i was you know i was just trying to like you know think ahead okay what are we going to do like in the winter and um so i had heard this ep um by the band versus and um new york band and i really thought the sounds were cool on it we, we were sort of looking for maybe a studio that could capture some almost like like 60s type sounds like you know we were because we were you know we're at this point we were like you know going back and listening to the beatles the small faces you know the creation the kinks we, it's not like we were ignoring what was happening in current music you know or with you know we, we were listening to you know dc stuff and indie rock stuff as well but it was kind of like we were kind of like okay is there a place that could really like um capture where we're at in terms of the songwriting so i I heard this record versus had done and i was like oh i like these drum sounds a lot um you know i think this could be a cool place to record and so we made a list of places and when you know first place we called up this uh we called up this guy nicholas in brooklyn at the rare book room and we hit it off with him we we kind of did a we did a single that fall you know we went in and recorded some new songs with him um and we we often like did that like we we would like pop into a studio in new jersey or something and try to do a couple songs while we were on tour and sometimes you'd kind of get some compilation tracks out of that but um the single you know it came out really well and it, it just obviously had a fantastic studio and great equipment and a great ear and just had a good vibe with him um and it was in williamsburg brooklyn so it was kind of a different you know slightly different setting for us which i thought was kind of interesting and then we just basically went back up the next month um and this time around we kind of had support from gurn blanston from charles you know we had a budget you know so we could spend i don't remember how many days in the studio but like you know nine or something um 
you know, a, a nice long time in the studio. And so we just, yeah, we just kind of hunkered down and started recording and we kind of recorded, you know, songs that we'd had for years, songs we'd had, you know, only a few months and a couple tracks that kind of we had, you know, we tried to finish up before we got in the studio, but they weren't quite finished up. And then we took them in sort of, you know, those songs we kind of experimented with a little bit more. But, you know, so we, we ended up with a lot of stuff recorded. We ended up with like 17 song album. And, and so that, uh, I just, you know, that in many ways was just like such a positive <laughs> And we had a lot of fun. I mean, we, you know, would kind of go out to dinner in Brooklyn or New York, you know, if we had a little extra time. And um, so, yeah, it was a crazy, you know, fun time in our lives. And um, that uh, you know, and I, that record ended up becoming set you free, which, you know, we, I felt like should have gotten a lot more attention, but the band, you know, the band didn't last long enough to really give it right proper attention. Um, so what's happening now and kind of the, you know, the, the reason for we're, uh, we're speaking today and we're talking about chisel is that um so numero group we've been building up to this through like you know a series of digital um releases through numero group and now we've got this double lp version of set you free coming out so it's got you know the 17 songs that were on the original album split on the three sides and then the fourth side um there's some extra tracks and a couple different versions of the songs uh, we did it other studios and I think there's one one is like a live on the radio version of a song so and I think it just sounds awesome you know and it's like what's what's possible these days in terms of remastering is pretty amazing you know the mastering technology is fantastic and so it's just it's very exciting to see you know to see this project come through and I, I think this is like a record I can definitely get behind and say it's worth the money. And there's, you know, there's a cool booklet in there and there's um, a great and essay. Just did it, right? Yeah. Just did it. Did a great job. And, um, you know, I think you kind of get some insight into, you know, what, it, what the band was like and what we were like at the time. And um, yeah, so I don't, I think it's, the whole thing has has been super fun and, and worked out really well. I also like that it kind of happened this way. There was time between um, it had a proper release, you know, proper. It didn't just kind of come out and go. There's a little bit of event around it too. You've got some shows, so I, it just feels like it's 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 kind of going into the machine, but it's sort of doing it right for what the record, like you said, didn't have a chance to sort of spread its wings. Yeah, and I think we're we're kind of lucky in that, like I said, it took us a couple of years of talking and talking to Numero to kind of make this happen, not because we were hesitant, but just because, like, the process and, um, you know, the details took a while to iron out and took a while to find everything. Um, but in the meantime, they've been, you know, reissuing stuff from bands, um you know, of us, which don't have um, dissimilar backgrounds to Chisel in terms of where they were from, and you know, you know, '90s bands that were in our larger underground music music scene, um, and so they've 
been able to learn from that and sort of, you know, learn these sort of ways to build an audience online and how to connect that with, um, you know, letting people know there's, you know, a physical record they can buy. And so, yeah, we're, I mean, hopefully we're benefiting from that. I mean, like (laughs) it's, it's anything that we can do just, you know, so that more people can check it out and enjoy it, I think is what it's all about. You know, it's obviously like, again, it's the whole, for, for us, this band was totally like a, you know, a passion thing, you know, it was like never one of those things where anybody thought we were going to get rich. Um, but you know, at this point we need to sort of be able to make it make sense financially for everybody. Right. <laughs> it's like, like no one, no one wants to spend their, you know, savings on this. So yeah, I mean, uh, it seems to be working out and yeah, I mean, I, you know, I, I still, I'm one of those people that I get excited about things. I'll buy the two record, two or three record set of, you know, bands I liked from the past. And I love like bonus tracks and I'm totally a graphic design guy. So I like really like nice looking packages and kind of, a, you know, I'm kind of a hi-fi aficionado as well. So like, I want things that sound really good. So yeah, I mean, on all those in terms of all those facets, I'm really, really psyched about this. I'm really proud of it. So, well, th- that's that, that's what's kind of great about Numero, where it is in it's 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 accessible. There are ways for someone to find this versus before it was crate digging or a friend had the mixtape or you know those types of things. But to be able to have it around and available and, and people to discover it, um, and then. Um, yeah, I just think there's, uh, this is that perfect time for it. Yeah. I mean, it's kind of been like, you know, a leveling in terms of, you know, um, influence or something. I mean, I guess I feel like in the nineties, people look to certain, you know, they look to certain independent record labels to sort of set the tone. Um, and I don't know that those record labels are quite as important as they used to be, um, and you know it turns out there's lots of like amazing music that was um you know unsung in its day or you know i mean and i also think they're putting out things that i loved and i thought was thought were great at the time but just didn't you know um did the records didn't stay in print you know and the bands didn't stay together and so they're, they're sort of you know they're they're also telling part of the story of certain time period um, again, for people that, you know, want to, um, I don't know, they, they want to know what was cool. You know, they, they don't necessarily feel like they're getting a really getting the accurate story in terms of, um, what was happening in the nineties. I mean, I, you know, I, I don't want to get too far into this, but I feel like there's been a lot of sort of, um, you know, editorializing people trying to sort of describe the nineties in a certain way. And they held up certain few bands as being, Oh, these were kind of the bands that really defined that era. And I just often don't agree. And, and I often think that, you know, there are so many different perspectives on what was happening then. Um, so I don't know. I, I think it's valuable just to kind of, you know, get um, some different ideas about what, you know, what was happening and, you know, who was making interesting music 
you know, even if they weren't on the super cool label of the era. Right. Or that it got, it was that label ended up being defunct and then not doing, keeping up with the times. Right. Or, um, and sort of letting it go. And now there's that time to be able to pick those out. And I think people are searching. I think people want to know, they know about the top five, they know about the top 10. Tell me about the other ones that were coming through, um, which I think is really exciting. Um, yeah, I was always kind of into like, oddball bands too, you know, just growing up. That was kind of, you know, my thing is that I didn't necessarily want to buy the records that were in the top 10. You know, I was sort of always adopting some band that, you know, was obscure or like a regional Right, um, that, sort of post punk band or something. Well, I, that's it, if we'll mention Mike throughout this, but your brother Mike, I remember him saying, "Oh, here's this thing. It's X band from the UK. It's this B side from this, and it was it was from you." And I think that gets mentioned a lot on the podcast about older siblings, you know, sharing. And I think you saying that you wanted to find the different stuff was what I really resonated with. I didn't want to hear what was being shoved. I wanted to be like, what's behind that other record? Um, what was that? What, where did that start? I mean, you were growing up outside of DC. You're very lucky to be able to have that, but I don't think we've talked at length about sort of that, you know, your passion for that discovery and, and finding those things. Um, and you were, you know, literally a footstep away from, the epicenter of a lot of things that people still talk about. Yeah. Yeah. Um, for sure. I mean, I've, I didn't, you know, there, there wasn't a lot of music in our, um, family growing up. We, we kind of had a, a large collection of Irish folk records and Panasonic stereo and, um, you know, not, not a whole lot of other music around, but um, I just got really, um, I definitely was really fascinated with, you know, rock music from, from grade school on. Um, and, you know, we'd have like older, um, we had a family friend from Ohio come to visit and she brought like Rolling Stone magazine and, um, you know, some, uh, there was some sort of like older kids around in the neighborhood. Um that were into rock. There's this, um, a guy named Tim Hubel that was, um, a neighbor that sort of, you know, watch, watch over me when I was at that age where you're kind of slightly too old for a babysitter, but your parents don't want to leave you <laughs> by yourself. Right. Um, and he would bring like his rush records over. And so they're kind of like kids in the neighborhood that sort of educate you on rock. Um, and so I was just, you know, I was totally, I was really curious about it. And I would buy like, um, I started buying like Queen 8 tracks and, um, you know, as they were being phased out, you could get them for like 99 cents. Um, and then I think there was just sort of like, you know, new wave music was sort of in the era, in the, in the era and in the era. Um, so, you know, the things like the Cars or Blondie were kind of, hitting the airwaves and you kind of be, you know, they were, I was fascinated by them, but I knew that that wasn't exactly punk. I knew there was something that came before. So I was kind of curious to, you know, see where that came from. Um, but yeah, I was just fascinated by it. And I, I was thinking about this before, uh, you know, after listening to a, a many uh, episodes of your podcast, um, just one of the moments that really 
um, moved me when I was a kid, it was like our sixth grade elementary school graduation party, like at the school. And this power pop band played. And I think it was our, like our family physician's son was in this band or leading this band. He was probably like a senior in high school or, or just out of high school. And I just, I thought they were phenomenal. <laughs> like that really blew my mind. And that was one of those, one of the first experiences where I was like, oh, live music is much more, you know, intense. And like, it's really um, super exciting to be, you know, in the room with the musicians. That kind of like made a big impression on me. Um, and then there were, you know, there were just like, yeah, there were older brothers and stuff, but, and there were just certain kids that were like really kind of um, precocious. There was a kid, um, in our neighborhood that I, I went to grade school with for a number of years. And he had, you know, he had brothers that were much older than him. So that might've helped, but he got like British, he was read, reading like British music magazines in like sixth and seventh grade and just buying like heaps of records. Um, so I would go, you know, I started borrowing, you know, Joy Division and Aztec Camera and, you know, these wow you know, bands that you really couldn't, um, wouldn't hear about, you know, but he, he was getting, there's a magazine called smash hits. It was kind of like, it was sort of like a teeny bopper magazine, but it had lots of punk and new wave and, you know, like they put the damned on the cover. I mean, it was just things that you wouldn't see in American um, publications. So there was that. And then, um, you know, I think MTV was filtering in. So I don't know. I mean, I, I, I sort of was just curious about music. So I kind of just, you know, soak it up in different um, situations that I was in. <laughs> and I, you know, I just remember this, I just remember certain moments, like the first time I heard like a Generation X album and that I saw like a, within the same year, there was this sort of television documentary that had Generation X in it. And I was like, oh, I mean, you know, it was long after Generation X were were gone, you know, Billy Idol was solo, but I remember just being like, oh my God, they're so good. Like, I've got to go get some of those records. You know, just, I was really um, just paying attention when these little things would pop up in the culture. Um, what about um, going to shows? Like, after seeing that power pop band in sixth grade, like, were you like, I, where are these shows happening? Do I, can I, you know, was that, when did that start? Yeah, I mean, that um, really, I guess, really very early, uh, early high school, right, um, started sort of finding out about things. Um, there, um, Were you playing you know, yet? I, you- I, yeah, I started playing, gosh, I want to say, it, I started playing probably about 1985, um, just with a couple kids I met in high school. Um I, I joined them before I actually even had a drum kit. Like I, I just had sticks. <laughs> nice. <laughs> and so I would like play on, I think they, you know, the first practice I was just playing on like some stools in this kid's basement. Um, but I had started taking these group drum lessons um, through like Fairfax County that were pretty inexpensive. And, you know, there's like 20 people in a room um with this guy mr evans was the instructor and there was you know 
definitely like the DC punk thing was even filtering into the, into that, you know, situation. Like there was a kid that would show up for our group drum lessons and he had a homemade Dane Bramage t-shirt. Wow. Which was, which was Dave Grohl's band at the time, or they might've even already been defunct at that point. But, um, so I was, you know, it's just like little things like that. I was like, Oh, Dane Bramage. Yeah. I think, you know, I should find out who that is. Um, but I was taking these, these group drum lessons and, and they were, they were good, but I wasn't really getting very far without a drum kit. And so I think I got a drum kit after that, um, experience, just like bought, um, sort of a student kit from, from the teacher, um, that served, you know, served me really well throughout high school. And that was um, in your basement started, too, right? Didn't you said you set up in your basement? Yeah, the first so the first band I was in with these guys from um, Paul the Six, this guy, this guy Sam, this guy Scott. Um, we mostly played at their at their houses, um, and so I would it was just annoying because I had to bring my drum kit and set it up every time, um, you know. And that was basically like, you know, you're sort of like punk 101 band. We did like Sex Pistols, The Who. Um, you know, we, and, but we were aware of, we were starting to hear about the discord stuff. Like I think, um, Sam or his brother had the Dagnasty records. And so all, all that, you know, the sort of the discord stuff I would found out through, found out about, you know, through friends. And then I started, you know, buying the records. Um, we had, I was really lucky. We had a really cool record store, not too far from our high school, um, called record convergence. And so they, you know, they got all the Discord stuff in, but they had like, you know, used post-punk and, you know, British music and occasional imports and psychedelic stuff. And it was really um, pretty great, like homegrown record shop. And you could also, that's where people would drop off flyers for shows. Um, so I think, you know, I think I saw like a, I think I saw REM or something um, at Lisner Auditorium was kind of my first like real wow okay i'm going going to like a concert concert um i might have seen the beastie boys before that but that would felt more like that felt more like a teeny bopper experience right <laughs> whereas the rem thing was like oh these are older you know it's mostly older kids and college kids um and that was you know it was a fantastic show um and then from then on i was kind of trying to go to um you know the punk shows that were being held um closer to home so they especially there was a really great um venue called maryfield community center that was kind of near like the metro station um out in virginia and so they booked a great series of shows where it was sort of like um ignition shutter to think um and i was playing indian summer at this point so um i'm jumping ahead a little bit i could get into that later it evolved quickly from uh, i was played in this trio this trio kind of fell apart um i met a kid at rehoboth beach delaware while i was skateboarding uh you know skateboarding on some curbs and this kid came up and started talking to me turned out he lived like a mile away he was a guitar player he just wanted to start a new band and so we he and i um recruited a couple of people. And so we, that fall, we started playing, um, this, and that, that was Indian summer. 
and it's the DC Indian summer. So I know there's a couple. Yeah. There's a few other ones, DC or Virginia, if you care. Um, but anyway, that, so that was a, you know, that was an avenue into performing live in all sorts of places, but yeah, I mean, it was a great environment in that you could, um, DC, you could go to a lot of shows, um, even in the clubs in the city, they just put an X on your hand. If you were underage, I mean, I was way underage. I think my first DC space show, I think I was barely 16. I mean, might've not even been 16. Um, and your parents were cool. You were let, they were like, you, you can go like they were, they, they were supportive. You didn't have to sneak out. Yeah. I mean, I was like extremely responsible and I didn't really get in m- trouble much. So it was kind of like the, the flip side of that was they, you know, they trusted me in, enormously and maybe, you know, more than I deserved, but I, was able to do all kinds of stuff like yeah goes and and, and that i think that first dc space show ended up being like really late but um you know i i mean i, I was also pretty busy i was like in school you know obviously in high school and i was running cross country which i was running pretty much every day of the week um so I just didn't have time to get in trouble. You know, I just didn't, I wasn't really, <laughs> I wasn't really into drink. I mean, I just, a lot of the things, ways that you can sort of get in trouble in high school, like I just didn't really have time for, you know? Um, and if I was, you know, if I was bored, I wanted to kind of do something creative with it. I think that's also the, the thing that I've been thinking about this week is that I always had these sort of like the urge to be creative, you know, like I, when I was a kid, I would draw like just for hours on end, and I wrote sort of what you you know call sort of like crude graphic novels, you know, just really simple like blends of westerns and Star Wars and you know like Sunday matinee kind of TV um, storylines. But I would write and illustrate these stories. And so when I kind of burned out on sports, that's kind of when I flipped the switch and was like, okay, um, I'm going to give this drawing. Thing a try um because it really came out of nowhere i mean there wasn't any you know i didn't really know musicians in our neighborhood and my parents didn't play really um they were you know they're into the arts they were into um you know theater and literature and um you know my dad was like had a really deep knowledge of like sort of popular Hollywood, you know, like classic films, you know, like you could name, you could name the, the actors in some film from 1944 and and you'd just be like, what, you know, (laughs) um, you're weird dad, but I like, yeah, yeah. Um, (laughs) but yeah, I mean, I think I was trying to think of where my urge to play the drums came from, but I think it was a little bit of sports burnout coupled with the sort of missing, um that feeling of being like a creative you know younger kid you know just like getting lost and being creative so that kind of led me to you know and and then it sort of really led to trying to do stuff in the dc punk scene i mean our band was sort of the band that came out of um that meeting at the beach um was like you know a four piece and we really uh, i mean i don't know if all of us were that ambitious but our guitar player was really persistent about trying to find shows and find places to play and so you know we would 
we got some really good shows outside the city and Arlington and other places. And then, you know, we ended up playing, um, we played one show at DC space, which was kind of like the crowning moment of my high school music career. I just thought that was like the ultimate place to play. Um, but, and and we, and we played, played in St. Mary's County, Maryland. We, we kind of had a connection with, um there were two uh women i guess young women um pam and shauna and they did a zine called no scene zine in st mary's county maryland which is not really that close. i mean it's pretty far away from dc but um they uh, you know they kind of made a scene you know there, there were bands they kind of helped these bands from that area do stuff um there's a band called out crowd that we used to go see and we played shows with um and they put on a pretty amazing festival i think um indian summer didn't make it <laughs> we didn't make the cut to actually play the festival that we, we tried um but i you know we drove all the way down there hoping to hoping to get squeeze on the bill um but it ended up being like just musically really amazing um I think electric love muffin played from philadelphia which were they were like a legit like touring band um moss icon played i don't remember who else played but it was just one of these things like wow how did they pull this festival off like in the middle of nowhere wow um so they and they were big supporters of our of our band our high school you know sort of punk band which our band was kind of like you know, we hardcore was sort of over at that point, so we weren't really trying to be a hardcore band, and we weren't really. What year was that? Like, um, it would have been between '87 and '89, because we were only—I think we we're only around for two years. Um, and you know, we had we had a couple minor lineup changes, and then, um, you know, it it. It was, um, yeah, I mean, we managed to do a lot, but I think it was, it was, uh, most of it was due to the persistence of the guitar player. This guy, Steve Francis, really just, you know, was like loved punk rock, had a, you know, big collection of punk rock records and, you know, just wanted to make it happen. And um, so for being from, you know, two of us were in high school and um, by the time we finished, two of the guys were freshmen like at george mason university like we kind of you know we kind of did everything we wanted to do um and the thing that came out of it um you know this sort of document of the whole thing is that we went and recorded i don't know four or five songs um at a little radio like a studio where they would do like um just do like radio jingles and stuff in Baltimore and this guy, um, Joe Crunch engineered it. And then someone somehow convinced Jay Robbins, who was then, and he was still in government issue. We somehow convinced him to help us. Wow. <laughs> and so he kind of like was our, our producer, you know, he, he, he actually did a fantastic job because he helped me properly tune the drums. Um, he called up, I think, the drummer from Squirrel Bait, which which was kind of my favorite band at the time. Um, called him up, you know, as, if you're talking about like sort of like a post hardcore post punk drummer. I mean, their their drummer was fantastic. Um, 
called him up, got some tips on tuning drums. So we tuned the drums really well. And, um, you know, we we did a pretty decent job of recording like our most sophisticated tunes. Um, and we were hoping to do a single. And I think there was, you know, there's there was talk of, of doing a single with um, like DSI records, which was like a Northern Virginia label. Um, or maybe doing something with um, Amanda McKay's label, um, Sandwich Records, but nothing really happened. And um, the singer and the guitar player couldn't really get along anyway. So, and and I was graduating high school, so it, was, it all kind of fell apart. Um, <laughs> and then in in just hilarious sort of high school naive fashion, um, we had a couple shows um, booked, like um, like a club show and in. DC at this place, the barbecue at Iguana, and and then um, a basement show in um, Manassas. Like we had had a buddy from high school that that put on shows in this basement basement in Manassas. And instead of canceling the shows, I recruited like two other guys <laughs> to sing and play guitar. Like that were that were friends, you know, that were friends and fans of our band. Um, and so we played, but it was like completely a farce. I mean, it wasn't, you know, the guitar player was really good, but the, the singer was really shy. And, you know, it was just one of those things. Where I was like, oh, really? like I kind of learned like the people in the band really make the band. You know, it's you can't necessarily sub in people. Right. Even play the same songs. You know, it doesn't didn't really work. Um, but I should say one thing that was kind of interesting um, we our our high school kind of had a little um you know kind of on a new wave sort of punk scene you know like it, it was just i just happened to end up at the school where there were other kids that you know played music and had bands and i think by the time i was a senior we figured out oh we should play you know we should do these basement shows together so even though I was the only one from Indian summer that went to this, this high school, this Catholic high school, we would um, team up with other kids that um, actually it was probably pretty, maybe it was when I was a junior because the, most of the other kids that I knew in bands were seniors. Um, but we did a bunch of sort of basement shows. This, this kid in um, uh, that lived in Manassas would have sort of like, have like a, you know, large size garage and we would do shows there and he was in a brand band and his brother was in a band. So like some of my fondest memories, although I was going to, you know, see as much sort of, you know, punk stuff as I could in the city at the 930 club or whatever, or, I mean, in positive force shows were huge. I mean, that was sort of um, really special experience too. I mean, that, I think, when I think about how lucky, you know, I was to be in that area. I mean, the, some of the positive force shows and the bands that were mm -hmm. kind of emerging um, at that time in the late eighties, which is, it's kind of mind boggling that that all was happening at once, you know, right where I lived. Right. But I, I guess what my point is that a lot of my fondest memories are just, just these, you know, basement shows that we do with, um, you know, friends bands that I knew through high school, you know, it's just kind of like our special thing, you know? Yeah. And, did, and, and uh, th those are moments in time. 
there's a kid that's super into it and does it and people jump on. Yeah. Yeah. And I think, you know, at the time I was much more concerned about like, you know, making, you know, making a name in the, you know, in the, uh, in the local scene, but I wasn't, I didn't necessarily realize that, that we had sort of created something like of our own, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, I don't know. I'm, I'm definitely kind of rambling. You're all not, over the place, you're so. not at all. You're <laughs> not at all. Well, I wanted to mention I Dugan or sorry, Mike brought me to re- the record store that was near you. And I, I actually still have these CDs. I bought rights of spring and embrace in, and I handed it to the guy and he goes, emo one Oh one, huh? Good on you. <laughs> but that was so nice. He could have said a side yeah. comment. He could have like, you know, I just thought I, th- I was just, I was like, Oh man, like he was cool with me, even though I was trying to, you know, learn. Um, and I just think you guys having that store so close, um, it's, I don't know, life-changing. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it was really, it was really handy and I didn't really, and I didn't have tons of cash and they, because it was a used record store, um, you could sort of like investigate all kinds of music that, you know, you'd heard about, but at, hadn't actually heard. Right. Um, and I, for a long time, my rule was like, probably for a year or two, you know, I would buy the new Discord records because they were only like six or seven dollars. I mean, they were so cheap. And then the you know used records were usually like three ninety nine. So you could I would buy in, in volume. You know, like <laughs> I, how many records could I get for like twenty bucks? Um, the, you know, the other thing that was sort of a big influence on me um, that was nice about DC was uh, we had a homegrown you know progressive rock radio station called whfs that was like a truly fairly freeform radio station through a good part of the 80s um it became more you know later it became more tightly formatted and and you know more um professional or whatever but you know i i when i was getting into music i could just flip on whfs and you know depending on who was djing you you know, you can expose yourself to something you really had no other way of hearing. Um, so it's crazy, but I heard um, Husker Du, The Jam, Minor Threat, Red Lorry, Yellow Lorry, like tons of stuff on the radio, like first before I really heard it anywhere else. Wow. Um, they, there was like a drive, you know, they had like a drive time DJ. It was like one of the more popular djs in the afternoon i remember coming like getting a ride home from school early in high school they would play not every day of the week but like several days a week they would play smithers jones um by the jam it's a song that bruce foxton sings um they would play that as like part of the drive time half hour and they would play devo working in a coal mine they would play like a bunch of you know songs that are about going to work and coming home you know that's pretty rad um, so that was a huge asset and, you know, just gave you a, exposed you to things that, you know, were pretty outside the mainstream. And I think that also sort of supported, you know, that's why DC actually had interesting clubs and that it, it was sort of an ecosystem with the 930 club, um, and that, you know, they would play music on WHFS and the, you know, they play a lot of Robin Hitchcock and Robin Hitchcock would play at the 930 club. And, you know, there was sort of 
a lot of that stuff we think was pretty special for considering DC, you know, especially back then was not, you know, a huge cultural center in a mainstream way. Um, so that was pretty, yeah. And then, you know, WHFS was pretty fantastic and in a lot of ways and ended up being, um, you know, I crossed paths with WHFS many times <laughs> and Chisel did as well. So, you know, the, it's it's been it was a big part of I think you know sustaining my interest in music. I love that for years. Um, I did want to bring up another thing about DC before we move to uh, the Midwest, uh, but not for emo, uh, but for for <laughs> Chisel. But do you remember hearing the word emo for the first time? You know, I was thinking about this. I think I think we had maybe used it a little bit in the late '80s when. You know, because I was absolutely, I was like a Rights of Spring Embrace fanatic. You know, I loved, I loved those records. I didn't, I kind of just missed seeing them live. It was a little bit too young for that. Um, but yeah, I mean, it, those two bands, and I've also got to say, like Dag Nasty for me was, for a couple years, was they were kind of the penultimate DC band for a mm-hmm. few years because they were, so, um, the, you know, the first two records were really great, but they also really kind of flicked the switch from um, a local band mentality to sort of like, you know, we are a national band, you know? And I think for me, it was slightly a bummer because they weren't playing all these little, you know, uh, tiny community centers where I was going to see shows they were out on the road, but, you know, they were so, um, uh, advanced. And I mean, while I don't think people associate them with, you know, with emo or whatever, I, uh, all those bands to me were just like, um, you know, really inspiring. And the fact that they came from where we were from. Um, but I, you know, I really thought, I thought, Oh, Diagnostic is going to be, they're going to be huge. I mean, they're going to be, <laughs> You know, like I thought they, um, I thought that was a band that could break punk before punk punk broke. You know what I mean? I thought they had all the ingredients. Um, anyway, but that's kind of a side. But yeah, I think I heard, I think I heard the term a little bit at the end of um, high school. And there was like a famous flip side issue that, that covered those bands. I don't know if you've come across this doing, doing your radio show. I have. Um, yeah, I think that might have been one of the first times I saw the term like in print, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, so there was that. And then, you know, I just, I mean, I think it was kind of like, um, it was just like a casual subgenre term, um, maybe a little bit dismissive, but not, you know, sort of unclear. Um, and then I think the time when I, we probably started using it more was um you know in college when we come across like um especially when you come across the heart attack fanzine totally which i gotta say the thing that i i thought the the photography in that magazine was just fantastic and it made you really want to be at those shows see those bands um wasn't necessarily as inspired by the writing at the time but you know, it was like almost over the top. Like the writing was like, like 
maybe too far gone, you know, mm-hmm. <laughs> but, um, but, you know, it was like, I was very much aware of that. There was sort of this subgenre emerging and, um, you know, I'd sort of grown up seeing, you know, Fugazi play shows, um, before they were, you know, before they had singles out and stuff. And by the time, you know, I think the, the, the sort of emerged sort of bands that were, you know, I wouldn't say, I mean, they were taking a lot of influence from Fugazi. They're obviously really inspired by Fugazi. Um, and I, you know, I thought, okay, that's definitely like, I could see how somebody would want to do that, but you know what? I don't really think that from, from a, a musician's point of view, I don't really think that's a great band to try to imitate. I don't think it's going to work out. You know what I mean? It just didn't. Oh, you mean um, for, for people to imitate Fugazi? Yeah, because, well, and I guess what I'm trying to say is that emo also became, for me, in the underground, associated with bands that were kind of trying to sort of follow in Fugazi's footsteps. Interesting. You know? And it wasn't, um, it wasn't necessarily bands that were picking up on Rise of Spring or Embrace, because I think, I don't really think a lot of it in emo bands sound like those bands. Um, but, you know, I, I don't know. I mean, I, I think it, I, it's kind of a, you know, I kind of take it on a case by case basis. I mean, there are definitely, you know, things that came out of that genre where like, yeah, we were really, I was really into it in um, college and when, when listened to it, but I wouldn't necessarily be like uh, trying to, um, you know, collect all the singles that were, you know, qualified for that genre. You know what I mean? I didn't, yeah. I didn't, I didn't adopt that as my, my sub genre of choice. I think if I had an allegiance to a genre, it was probably like for a few years, I was, you know, I was very much like into, you know, the mod thing um, right. in high school um, and, and to the jam, but there just weren't enough people around that like, got that or wanted to you know play that music so i'd say probably my thing was probably just like post-punk music like i i liked that um you know that sort of idea of like you know it's beyond like the basics of punk like where can it go like what sort of meanings can it take on and and how how can we expand on this music I think that um, that totally resonates because that's I like you said hardcore was kind of dead. I got into post hardcore, which felt yeah. a little bit more advanced. The same thing. Agree with you on, on punk. Punk got only so far. Okay, Ramones, Four on the Floor, got it. Oh wait, <laughs> there's post punk, and they're doing this kind of thing, and then also leading into indie rock. Right. Um, well, which, and, and the thing is, the funny thing about post punk is that I think the term, I think the British press coined the term in a kind of dismissive way which it's really it has a lot has a lot of similarities to emo in that in that sense explain that more because i never realized i think they were basically saying like okay punk was this huge you know youth quake cultural awakening is particularly and you know shook things up now what comes after oh it's sort of like i think they were sort of saying oh it's this ho-hum sort of bland you know musicians hangover you know they were they were sort of dismissive of it of it as a genre and you know it's sort of like um 
if you can't give a genre of real a name of its own, if it has to be post or pre, you're not really you're not you're not really endorsing that genre, you know? I love but, that. But if you think about it, the post punks kind of had the last laugh because all you know, so much music that we think of as the emer- that emerged as like big time rock music started out as post punk music. I mean, you know, U2, I, it was stuff that I was into at the time, like early U2, big country, the cult, like all of these are considered post punk bands. Um, you know, but I was into things like magazine, they were like it was like a spin off of the Buzzcocks that was they were very much a post punk. I was in the public image. I mean, the public image is kind of like the epitome of post-punk, you know, right? sort of um, noisier, artier version of it. And then, like, I considered, like, you know, Squirrel Bait, you know, I considered, like, sort of these American bands that were, you know, obviously way beyond hardcore. I just consider them post-punk bands as well. So... For me, it was kind of like a catch-all term for what I was into, and I, you know, I liked, you know, I liked hardcore, and I mean, for sure, absolutely loved Minor Threat, but I didn't, I didn't really like want to keep reliving, you know, the glory, someone else's glory days, especially. <laughs> by the time I was, by the time I was into, you know, sort of like the DC stuff, there were people that were like, oh yeah, it was great back in. 82 and 83 and you know i mean people got their heads kicked in but yeah great. you know it's sort of like <laughs> people are, were nostalgic about you know people in in punk can be nostalgic about six months ago you know but they would be nostalgic about what they were doing in high school you know i mean and that's just how people were and so i think i learned to kind of resist that sort of urge to be nostalgic about the first six months I was going to shows and just kind of like look forward, you know? Yeah. I mean, I, I, I guess one of the, I was thinking about this the other day, um, you know, in terms of what, how I feel about emo is that, you know, the way, the way genres work is that, you know, to sort of qualify for the genre of the song and the bands and the singer have to sort of do certain things, right. Um, within, um, you know, they sort of, you have to color within the lines a little bit to be a member of certain genres, right? Right. So genre, genre punk, and it, can, and it doesn't mean it, it can't be fantastic. You know, it, like there are bands that like absolutely excel at like, like doing certain genres. Or I think about, you know, when I think about garage punk, I think like, oh, there's like a couple of those teen generate records where they just completely blew the lid off the genre. But it's absolutely part of the genre. You know what I mean? It's not like they, they didn't change the mute. They didn't like bend the rules. They like, you know, they won at, at following the rules. And I think like, for me, that's one of the things that's like, I have a difficulty with, with emo is that for a lot of the bands, it's about coloring within the lines, you know, and they don't, um, for me, it doesn't it doesn't exceed that um, that level. Like it, so it doesn't become it doesn't either you know blow the lid off it, and it doesn't connect it to other kinds of music. And I think you know, particularly we'll probably get into this, but with with Chisel, like we were like so it was such a restless band in terms of style. We were always like 
changing her style and experimenting with style from song to song and genre to genre. I mean, there's like the music is really all over the map, like genre wise. Um, so, and you, you can think about this, but I have a sort of theory that there's like alternative emo universes out there where people change the rules, you know, like an emo universe where people set, like bands sound more like empire and embrace or really sound more like right to spring. In other words, the rules got set in a certain way, but there's actually, if you think about where that music came from, you could have set those rules in a bunch of different ways, you know, and that sort of explains kind of in, in some ways, like how, you know, things ended up, with, you know, with chisels, you know, we wouldn't really stick to any sort of genre rules. Um, they were all sort of changing anyway in that era. So I think in a lot of ways, like we made did the right thing. Right? We don't really sound exactly like any band from that era. And, you know, whether you like it or not, I mean, I don't think you can say, that we were, you know, blatantly ripping anyone off, <laughs> you know, and, I th- and, and, and to your point about Britpop, I mean, people that love Britpop can totally get down with the chisel record. And at the time, I don't think we were, you know, we were certainly not trying to be a Britpop band. In some ways, I think there's a lot of like fertile ground creatively for bands that like break out of their genres. But also trying something. I mean, that, that, that's the part that I guess when I heard it, I heard punk, I heard indie, I heard aggression, I heard, like, it was sort of hearing all those things at once, and as you're describing where you were trying to jump around to different things, um, that's what what stuck out to me the most when I first heard it, and also how clean it sounded. I don't know, a lot of 90s records I go back to, and I'm like, holy shit, this does not sound good. Um, and so wow. I just well, thought that's, that's, great. that's really good to hear, Tom. I appreciate that. <laughs> I, don't, I don't know if I would agree. But, really? Um, I just, I was playing them yesterday just to kind of, it, literally, I texted Mike. I was like, all I think about is your Jeep when I listen to Chisel. Because it was like some crappy Jeep he had in college. And that's what he would. Oh my like, God. Yes. I remember that. <laughs> One side story. Remember that. If, if you let go of the wheel, it would take the exit by itself. <laughs> Off the wow. highway. That's a self-driving, self-driving it was, it vehicle. Self-driving predecessor. Yes, but so I, I guess for you know the after me listening to you know shitty hardcore records, maybe that was um, a mind-blowing thing. But what about you kind of doing your own thing and trying to sound and not sound? Did you have? contemporaries or people that you connected with and felt because their urges to conform the urges to sound like what's happening in, in terms of chisel i mean a lot of that came down to you know the environment we you know we started um you know while we were studying um at notre dame and so um and and, and actually we we Ted and I met through the radio station, really, or met through the guy who was hell yeah, the manager at the at the radio station, and that kind of was like a social hub, you know. That and and our our original bassist Chris Infante was the DJ at the radio station, so the radio station was just kind of like a hub for, you know, obviously our band came out of, but you know, our friends that would you know go see us when we were just starting out. Um, and there was so, you know, you the, the radio station made so much music available to you and, and um, you know, really 
I'm sure you're familiar with this, but you can kind of see new styles and like, you know, you kind of see where things are going or, you know, what, what's sort of exciting. And, um, you know, I remember, you know, I, I mean, there, there, there were things that I was aware of before I got to school. I mean, I was really, I was clued in with the whole like sub pop K records thing before I got there, but you know, that was, that was happening, you know, the, that sort of, um, music that was coming from the Northwest and like, we were totally, you know, keeping up on that. Um, so I don't know. It just was, I think it was kind of just being open to lots of different styles of music and not, um, you know, uh, not having some sort of very rigid idea of what we wanted to do in mind. I mean, we're also, you know, super young, so we would get, we would hear something and then just get excited about it. And then that would kind of naturally come out. Um, and, and one of the things that is funny about early chisel and, but makes sense is that and we were a three piece. Um, we love this record, uh, Buffalo Tom record, Bird Brain, when it came out. We were all college DJs. Oh, it's a great it record. And yeah, and like we needed more songs to actually, you know, because we would go play like student union. They would want us to play for like, uh, or like a student coffee house. Like they'd want you to play for like an hour and a half. I mean, <laughs> it wasn't like you could just go up and bang through your eight or nine original songs. Um, so we played like, you know, we would play Buffalo Tom songs. We would play other um, sort of things we were into that were coming in the radio station. I mean, we we played songs that were like, where we had like, uh, I'm not going to tell you which ones, but we, you know, we had songs where we had like the CD single that wasn't out yet. We would learn the song <laughs> and play it. So there, I won't tell you which bands, but we played certain songs for a live audience like before people heard it on the radio um i love that yeah i loved getting so, those things early and you being like no one else has this on campus no one else has this and you're able to play it at a show and you guys took it to the next level by just copying the song which is great <laughs> yeah yeah and you and it was also i mean ted had been in other bands but i don't know if he'd really I don't think he'd fronted and sang for a band while playing guitar before so that was all sort of you know, when we, we were in college, it was sort of learning, learning as you went. I mean, I think the thing about jumping around genre wise is that you have experiments gone wrong that you don't necessarily like hold on to in your set or, you know, we, we definitely had things where we're like really into some, some new style or some certain band. And we're, we sort of write a song that, you know, it's our version of that and try to record it. And then you know, just couldn't pull it off, you know, and, th and that definitely happened a little bit in, in school. I mean, it was all such, and it was also such a blur too, because we're, you know, trying to get through college. Um, but we also, we had ambitions for our band from the beginning. So we were, we were trying to play um, out of town and we were, you know, trying to do mini tours and we played in like, you know, Stevens Point, Wisconsin in the winter, which was extremely cold. Um, and we played um, the, the first incarnation of Chisel. We went and recorded that inner ear and played at DC Space and kind of, you know, it was almost like, um, you know, trying to get a foothold in DC. And then we would play, you know, Ted was 
really involved with ABC No Rio and Oh um, right. So the first this was very early. So this is like the first incarnation Chisel played there. And I mean, and then there was like a period where like we almost became like an a noise, I don't want to say noise rock, but it was like the band veered into like sort of a Sonic Youth Dust Devils direction for a year or so. And we have some <laughs> songs, some songs that, you know, I mean, so there's just like, it was just sort of following, you know, it's a cliche, but following our muse. And I was kind of just up for whatever. I mean, it was all really interesting to me. Um, I, mean, I definitely liked liked certain things better than other things, but you know that was like it, you know we weren't trying to be we were trying to be as amb- ambitious as we could while sort of you know getting our getting out with our degrees you know and um, there weren't really any expectations from anyone but ourselves and we would kind of you know set you know set a goal like okay we're going to make a single and. I had a friend um, from high school wanted to start a label and put it out and that sort of all happened. And so we, we kind of like progressed by set, setting sort of realistic goals, you know? So the original lineup, we did a single, we, we recorded like overnight at inner year, like their cheap rate. Wow. And with some nice people, but it, it, I think they were kind of more like learning, learning product, you know, audio production. I think we did three songs. Um, my friend Chris Goulos from high school, um, I moved to Richmond. Richmond had a pretty vibrant scene at the time. Um, so he started a label and put out Chisel. Um, so there's a, yeah, there's like a white vinyl and a black vinyl a debut single from 91, maybe? I can't, I don't know. I don't remember the year, but mm-hmm. that came out fairly early. And actually, that, this is a pretty, uh, this was kind of a mind-blowing moment for me. Um, we had put out our single and done some, you know, played some shows over the summer. I think I was like, a, I think we had done that when I was like a sophomore in college. I'd come back out and moved in with some guys in a house off campus. You know, I was excited about the shows of single, but we weren't really doing anything. Um, we weren't doing a whole lot that year. I think Ted was not, um, he was, he was elsewhere. So, you know, I'm just hanging around the house one day. And I get a phone call and it's like, uh, it's Amanda McKay from Discord Distribution. And she's like, oh yeah, we want to distribute your single. What? Um, Tim, Tim Kerr told, a, you know, Ian and I about the Chisel single. And I was just like, what on earth is happening? Like, how did, <laughs> first of all, like, I don't even think she realized that she knew me from like high school. Um, but Maybe she did, but anyway, it, it was it was just mind blowing. It's like, wow, how how on earth did they get my phone number? It was just so completely insane, but also just like really nice and validating, and also kind of like, well, Discord is a real deal, man. They are gonna they went out and found, you know, <laughs> they went and found this band um, that made this single, you know, and were helping us get it out there, which is huge, you know, because I don't know how people are going to get the single other than us right. you know, walking into record stores at that point. Um, but anyway, that was, that was a really cool sort of exciting moment um, for, for me. That's and, insane. You know, just as being a fan of <laughs> what they do. Yeah. Yeah. And next, and you know, it's funny. And uh, Amanda has like just popped up in these really sort of like these moments that I remember. And, you know, I don't, I don't really know her that well or anything, but 
I was shopping at the store in Georgetown when I was home from college one year um, called Smash, which, um, mm-hmm. you know, it's like where you know, I used to buy records and T-shirts and whatnot. And I just had come home and I was like just overwhelmed. I didn't know what to buy or what to listen to or whatever. And she sort of points to this record, you know, on the shelf and she says, like, have you heard this? You've got to get this, get this record. And I was like, okay, great. And I just kind of put it in my little stack of records. Nirvana Bleach. Really? <laughs> record. Yeah. And I, it's like, I was aware of sort of soap pop stuff, but no one had said, you've just got to buy this record. And she um, did. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. So that was, that, that was my, that was my grunge epiphany. <laughs> um, that rules. But anyway, yeah. Like, so it was, you know, it was definitely funky being in a band while trying to go through, you know, get a degree. But, um, Again, I think there was a little, we kind of created our own entertainment and created our own little music scene. I don't know if I would call it a scene, but, you know, group of people that were into music. Um, So, and by the time, you know, by the time we graduated, we, you know, uh, friends of ours were bringing in like touring bands to South Bend and we would play, you know, we played like a house show with the Grifters, which were pretty amazing live band at the time. and then, you know, and we'd, and we'd done little tours on breaks. So we kind of were just, you know, built up, we're building up the idea of sort of, you know, being an active, if not full-time band, at least, you know, sort of functioning band that got out there and, um, you know, did the work. So when you left school or when you graduated, did everyone graduate? <laughs> Yeah, yeah. I mean, that's that's a slightly n- another story. Okay. But, um, <laughs> there, you know, for those keeping score at home, there's there was a year. So I moved to DC first, and I was there for a year, and I did like an internship, I did some traveling, and I started and I played in a couple bands. Um, I ended up sort of filling in. I was like the fill-in drummer for Edsel. Oh, so right. I'd, Edsel, I mean, they had this fantastic drummer, Nick. I don't know why he left, but um, I really was called in with almost, you know, very little rehearsal, like to just start filling in because they had a lot of, they actually had a lot of tour dates, like they had a legit, you know, tour schedule. Um, So I I sort of spent a year um, filling in an Edsel and we had an absolute blast. Those guys were just super you know wonderful i had known so rob so you were rocking yeah. edsel chisel was kind of on hold and then did did uh ted and everybody you know move or yeah yeah eventually eventually everyone relocated to dc and we started out in this, this neighborhood mount mount pleasant just kind of this beautiful hilly neighborhood um and um you know and start you know we found ways to um, re- sort of relaunch the band there. And, um, you know, I, I mean, I got to say that the DC, again, like the DC music community was super welcoming and really, um, you know, so we just found a lot of different supportive people in a lot of different corners of the scene. So we just kind of being a band we were, I think we sort of bridged a gap between, um, you know, people on the punk side and then Teen Beat was a very sort of like, Oh, right. You know, 
I, I don't want to say quirky, but it was just a little, it was a little more freaky stuff at the mm-hmm. time, freaky pop, um, which I liked a lot. And there's, you know, super fun people. Um, and then there was kind of even like a third, there was sort of like an indie pop scene um, that was a little more around like Velocity Girl. And, um, you know, I managed to land, um, you know, after living there for a little while, I landed uh, a job through a friend at the city paper so I could walk to work and I could get time off to go on tour. Um, and what were you writing at the time? I remember Mike sharing city paper articles or, uh, you know, I remember even probably getting it and then looking for you in the masthead and stuff. Were you doing music reviews and music stuff or was it more yeah. all over? It, you know, it was a couple of years. I worked there for a couple of years, I think, before I really started writing very much. Um, and it was, yeah, it was mostly music. And I mean, I think I did, you know, I did music previews and interviews. I did some, a little bit of film um you know i did some some book author event previews it was like arts arts journalism basically you know but it was very part-time i mean i was doing i did production at the newspaper was kind of like my main gig Mm -hmm. to pay the rent and then i would i could you know they you know i hung around long enough that they knew i might have something to offer in the writing department so i started getting you know basically freelance writing but um, because I was working in the paper, you know, I got, I got a lot of freelance writing assignments. So in that way, it was great because it wasn't something, you know, it wasn't in my plan to, to try to do arts journalism, but I just happened to luck into the situation where, um, I could learn, learn the trade. And there were just, there were also fantastic writers around. There's this guy, Eddie Dean, it was a fantastic writer. Um, Christopher Porter um, was a great writer. Uh, and then um, David Carr was our editor for a while and, and seemed, seemed to like my writing, told me he did. At least maybe he just might have just flattered a lot of people and I happened to get flattered on the right day. But um, so I just, it was a, it totally was a, stroke of luck to end up there and to get writing gigs and it's sort of like the being at the being being at a radio station you've got access to these people that are creative and thing people are you're exposed to things that you wouldn't have been yeah oh my god yeah i mean just in terms of all the music that was coming in, and really i gotta say the you know the radio station exposed me to a lot of music but i was very like you know i i was into the things i was into Whereas when I was at the city paper, you know, we got so, we got so much promo music in and I would take home like CDs that no one was interested in. And like, I really started to sort of educate myself about, you know, all kinds of things I I knew nothing about or whether it was techno or dub or, you know, like Portuguese Fado music or, you know, just all kinds of, it was, it was a great sort of place to educate yourself about culture. I mean, you know, I got to write about Korean new wave cinema one week and the next so week. So cool. You know, I'd preview like a, the Martin Amos, you know, I'd review the Mart. I reviewed like Martin Amos um, in print, you know, and, and back then the alternative weeklies, you know, they had a huge circulation and were really influential and it was really, 
you know, that's how you found out what to do. Yeah. I mean, I had to open um, up the voice in, in New York. Yeah. I'm like, what the hell am I supposed to be doing? <laughs> yeah, totally. Totally. So, Oh, that's great. It was great. And it, it, and it was kind of, um, you know, it was this, another, it had a very familial feel, you know, people really took care of each other at that paper. And, um, I gotta say again, like a lot of things in my life, I appreciate it. I appreciate it much more now than I think I did at the time. How come? I, mean, I, I, I why is it? Were you were you just present and not thinking about that, which is not wrong? No, I mean, I I think I also was like you know, I was young and I was having fun, and like it also you know it would also be the kind of the place where you know if I just spent a few nights playing in you know new york or boston or something i'd come back and i'd be like completely exhausted and have to go into work and you know what i mean it was, yeah it wasn't necessarily like you know um it was it, i guess you could say you know it was not I, I guess at the time i didn't realize that i was like growing as a person there i just thought it was a job you know to, to, to pay the rent, you know, my mm -hmm. cheap rent. And, um, but I mean that, you know, the music, like being able to write, you know, was, was a huge, um, you know, ended up being a real, um, what's the word I'm looking for? <laughs> it, well, it ended up, um, kind of showing me like maybe what I should do, like with my life, like it, it was sort of, a uh you know wake up call that i really enjoyed it and i kind of enjoy all kinds of writing it doesn't necessarily have to be um arts but i mean that certainly was a nice way to start um so yeah i mean uh, in that way i lucked out i mean and, and another way i lucked out is that i was able to do a bit of freelance graphic design when i worked there um, wow which i really did not study at all i mean i i apprenticed with some friends of mine that had like a graphic design studio um in adams morgan and kind of learn learn some of the software from them but that really enabled me to uh you know make a decent living while i was playing in the band because the band was not making money at all so <laughs> it was kind of like a total labor of love you know so um but anyway, yeah, I mean, it was a good situation for a good three years or so. The story, I guess the story um, about Chisel that's, that I don't know, if, you know, has, has really been told um, very well is that like we were, we were absolutely um, embraced, loved, like um, entranced, <laughs> Um, we we really caught the attention of the music industry. Mm -hmm. Like it's it's not like we were ignored. You know, it's it's we were uh, you know totally doing things in our own way and our, at our own pace and you know with minimal you know we we had zero you know we had no management or booking agent or any of that. We pretty much did everything just the three of us, which. I should also say we didn't necessarily have the best internal communication either. <laughs> we would kind of like just decide things on the fly or have a, like a really quick conversation, you know, do things. So it wasn't like we were, we weren't like highly deliberative and we didn't have like outside 
you know, input or management or whatever. And add to that, like the, just the bizarre um, experience I had, which was once we, even before we put out 8IM all day, we'd been, we played New York all the time. And I think the music industry assumes like you're playing New York all the time. Like you want to do business, you want to sign a deal. We just wanted, like, we were just trying to get in front of people, you know? Wow. Um, So there were, you know, there were like decent sized indie labels were approaching us right away. Like from when we sort of started, um, you know, when we set up in DC and then after 8am came out, it was like, it was still a little bit of a post Nirvana feeding frenzy vibe, but they just also could tell that we were doing things without, <laughs> without a lot of organizational, you know, framework that we, we were mm-hmm. doing things our own way. And, and so a lot of uh, people were calling us and I would get a lot of the phone calls because people knew that I worked at the city paper. So I would get these phone calls you know, while I was at work from sometimes from the president of a record label. And it was really bizarre. Wow. So we, we were getting, and I wouldn't, you know, it wasn't like people would offer things, but they wanted to talk to us. And we were, you know, we didn't really have an answer beyond like, yeah, we're not really interested right now. Um, you know, we, I don't, we, we were just busy doing things and it wasn't, um, it wasn't really in our plan to jump to a label at that point. You know, we, we were working with Charles at Kern Blanston and we were like really, you know, thankful to have someone to put out our records, you know? Um, there, and then there were some smaller indie labels that wanted to do stuff. So like we did a single with Darla records, you know, cause they were, they knew about us through um, our bassist. Chris had played on a record, um, Heartworms record that came out on a Darla and then kind of heard about Chisel through that. So, but I mean, it, it was, it was a crazy amount of people calling me and I don't even know if the other guys really understand <laughs> how often I was getting these phone calls. Um, and then we started meeting more people in person. And, and I think, you know, um, by the time we were getting ready to make, um, another record we had definitely met more you know music industry people in person and that was like an option for us you know and and i just don't think we ever really had a proper like full-on discussion about it you know so it sort of interesting was you know something we could have done but we didn't really like hash it out um but i don't you know it's also like we were but then we got on with the business of making a record that was, you know, I think a really good record. Um, and then, you know, we, we started touring on that and then that was it. We, you know, the band broke up, but, um, was that tour with karate that I saw you guys at the house? Was that the last tour? Yeah. I mean, if we, cause we toured the Southeast and went to Florida and I think our final show was in Knoxville on that tour. And that was, that was Chisel's last show. Wow. That was a fun ass show. I don't, I just remember Mike being like, we're going to go see my brother. Where? (laughs) 
Like, we're not going to the cradle. Like, we're going to a house. That was fucking nuts. Yeah. I mean, the funny thing is, Chisel was like, we were kind of in between the, you know, the, I guess you'd say like the pro, you know, the professional world and the sort of underground. Yeah. Kind of like go back and forth at certain times. And although we had grown accustomed to playing in clubs and we, you know, we toured with um, Velocity Girl and um, Fugazi and played played in bigger bigger venues with them. Like then, you know, we we would go and do a tour with someone else, and we there might be like several house shows in there. And I don't, that was, I mean, it was kind of, and, and we just kind of were talking about this recently. Like we never, it, the band like never really settled into one of those worlds or the other, you know. So we would kind of would float back and forth, and but that was kind of cool. Like it wasn't really about like. Um, you know, the professionalism of the venue or the context, you know, is more about just kind of getting, getting out and getting in front of people. And, you know, I don't think you can do that forever, but we definitely, we definitely did it for a long time. Um, but yeah, I mean, I actually think the, I mean, the last tour, as far as I could tell, I mean, I think almost every show was like pretty much packed. It was really very, you know, successful in that regard. And um, <clears throat> so, I mean, what well, I was just very bummed out because I thought the band was kind of on a roll and, right. you know, I thought, I thought sort of the next, like the, the thing that would come next would be even better. And, you know, I, I think I was getting more <clears throat> a handle on just my craft as far as like, you know, focusing a little more just on the drums and kind of maybe like simplifying my life a little bit so I could focus on that. And, um, you know, and I, I kind of anticipated that the rest of that, you know, year would have been a lot of touring if we hadn't split up. So it was definitely a bummer, but it was sort of, um, you know, in a lot of ways, <laughs> we, all, I, I don't know if, if our future would have been, you know, you can always think, oh, every everything's going to, you know, work out in this amazing way. But, you know, we maybe we wouldn't, I guess you could say, maybe we would have, like, stayed at the level we were at for a few years because it was, we were definitely a little bit ahead of the curve as far as musical styles in 1997. Um, I don't really think, you know, that, that record if it had come out in the early 2000s, I think, well would have caught on but that's what i want to talk about because when i saw you, <laughs> when you talked about earlier seeing things a little bit ahead of time i'm in new york uh i'm in the lower east side and you know the strokes play someone asked me to come see the yeah yeah yeahs play their first show with the liars and i'm like oh my god this is starting to be crazy uh, it, no shit in the back of my mind i did say i'm like if chisel was still around like this is it fit right into that because there was weird stuff. There was people being, you know, more techno about it. There was more punky stuff. Um, I, I know this is like rose colored glasses or revision of history, but I do remember saying like this would have fit in if it stuck around. I mean, you're not, you're definitely not the first person that's said that, but again, like that was, we were, you know, three or four years like ahead of, 
right. a lot of that stuff happening. So it's, that's kind of a lifetime in music. Totally. <laughs> like, yeah. Would we have made four records in between? You know, it's sort of. Um, so, but I, I think that all of that sort of speaks to the fact that it was the band was unique in a lot of ways. And it was, you know, we, I think even at the time I was kind of felt like we were doing really cool stuff and it wasn't, you know, cookie cutter. It wasn't what other people were doing. And, um, you know, with set you free, I think we really found a comfortable studio situation. I think other, we'd been in other situations, I think where we were, you know, worried about, um, spending money or we were for some reason we weren't comfortable or, um, whatever. But I think when the rare book room, we sort of like hit on a nice, you know, really comfortable working situation. We kind of were getting just more in touch with the craft of like making records, you know, and that like we'd been playing together for, you know, five or six years on and off. So it was natural to kind of like take it to another level. And I just, you know, maybe that is, was, was also a great place, you know, for it to, to end. And, and it was some, there's something that was kind of beautiful about that in, in a way. It was like making a really great record, you know, doing a tour and being like, okay, that's it, you know? Yep. Um, <clears throat> so I don't know. We like, we, because we hadn't really talked about like what the, you know, ultimate goals were for the band at that point. I think that was another thing. It's like, we didn't have, um, a plan in place. And we, I was, I was trying to that sort of uh, last, you know, six months of the band, like one of the things I was trying to start was a conversation about like, how, how do we make this sustainable? Like, where are we going to live? Like how often are we going to be on the road? Like, um, I didn't use the word sustainable, I'm sure, but I was like, you know, how right. can we make this last and not everyone go totally insane? Um, you know, sort of in that, and I didn't know what the recipe was for that, you know, but I know that we had certainly gotten to a place where we were, you know, a good live band and people were coming out to see us. And like, and like I said, I think I was, you know, talking about this earlier. I think we had, our music had sort of evolved beyond the genres we had been into growing up, not that we, you know, were better than bands working in those genres, but it didn't, you know, we weren't just meeting the, um, the genre like, uh, qualifications, you know, it wasn't, you know, in that sense, the band, the music wasn't really underground music, I guess is, is what I'm trying to say, right. that it had like a lot of appeal for, for just anyone who might, you know, be into rock interesting to see how you know the the world of music and and how things are done um these days from the artist side of things um i mean it's so different from you know what i'd say we were thinking about you know in our mid-20s um what's an example oh god like promo um, well, yes, yeah, certainly like um, the way you can, you know, the way you can communicate with people that are interested in your band, like pretty much directly, instantaneously, is pretty bizarre. Um, 
yeah, I don't know. I mean, God, um, I haven't really thought about this, but I think when we were an active band, like our live show was really like the way we connected, you know, there's no other really way. I mean, the, we, we made records that and the records um, were really good, but I think our, this, the type of band we were and the type of performers, particularly I think Chris and Ted are, it was like a live experience. And, you know, certainly obviously that's, a big you know that's um, how bands are are making their living these days is playing live but i almost mean like that was it you know what i mean like yeah it's sort of like that was our chance like you had those 35 minutes and you made an impression or you didn't um you kind of like went all out um and now it's like it's very you know the way a band um connects with people is really uh, distributed through a bunch of different channels and um, so it's, it's, there's so many other things besides their music and you could experience, you could, you know, experience uh, a band in so many ways without hearing their music. It's, it's very strange. Um, yeah. I think I, what I, you're trying to get at, or I think you've, you've summed up and I'll probably not understand or not say it as well but i i think about that of you were on right stage playing the songs there was a connection maybe at the merch table and there was this off period where and it's good or bad i don't think it's good or bad that now things are different that's just how things go but i liked having like an off i enjoyed you know the 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 effect of having a break and from a performance standpoint for me when I was in shitty bands um but also from a you know sort of an experiencing the music part there was a pause there was a a separation and I just think those things are so blurred that like you said there's social to catch up on there's dopamine to do you know wherever you turn you can turn that on and I just think there's like a burnout part of it that I think some artists have talked about recently but it just like you said, oh, yeah. you've got I, this, I you're you know, on the stage and you played and that was, that was your Instagram post, your everything. And I kind of like that on and off part. Yeah. I mean, I think, I think you, I think you hit on something beyond what I was really even getting into, but the, yeah, there's, there's the, um, the burden of sort of becoming, you know, your, your own self promoter that has to remind people that you exist um you know from a digital point of view um that you know i think that can be burdensome um for a lot of people um i mean i also just feel like there's something about there's something you know and like, like i said you know with that i love seeing this live band in sixth grade it just kind of blew my mind there's something about the live experience that is really can be, you know, really magical and um, intense and having so much access to a band and, you know, on video and all, all these other mediums. Um, yeah. in a certain sense, yeah, you get to learn that they're just like you and you, um, can see how they do everything it's you know you could it's backstage view of their life for on and on but like 
I don't know. Do you really need all that to have that magical um, live experience? And, you know, and, and, and even with, you could say the same for recordings, like, um, you know, that one, I, I guess what I'm saying is when I was young and I was growing up, it didn't have like a huge library of music. You know, I, so a lot of the experiences, music experiences that I have were like really intensified by, um, you know, discovering that new thing or, you know, bringing the rights of spring record home or bringing the gray matter record home from my friend's house or, um, you know, so I don't know. There's so much um, out there that I, I just, I really find it hard to believe anyone's having that sort of <laughs> intense experience anymore. Um, you know, it's like rather like they're getting washed down the street by a fire hose, you know, of, content right i mean like and then they're reaching out and grabbing a tree and saying okay this is this is yeah this is my thing you know what i mean like they're yeah. sort of like you know and i'm sure i'm like the eight million person to talk about this but you used to kind of have to be like a sherlock holmes of music to figure out which bands were connected to which and where they were from and like you know if you're into regional scenes or you're into uk punk you kind of had to do all this detective work to figure out how the bands were connected. And now it's just like, you could practically get a live video feed from someone's, you know, basement that, you know, in five seconds after you figured out you like their music. I mean, do you know what I mean? Like it's sort of, um, it's weird. It I'm not saying one, I'm not even saying one is better than the other. Right. I think it's, it, if you're talking about having an intense experience, I, I it seems so much harder to have that intense experience now. One more thing. Did Dave Grohl's mom live nearby? Yeah. Well, you know, I had a bunch of like overlap with Dave Grohl without really knowing him. His, um, I think his mom also was a teacher in the public schools. Um, and my mom sometimes taught at Annandale where he went to Annandale and then, some some of my friends in high school went to school at Bishop Ireton with him. Um, and I think he played, he played, um, I didn't see Mission Possible or Dane Bramage, but I knew, you know, it's like lots of my friends would go see those bands. Right. Um, yeah, I mean, he was, I would, you know, I probably met him while I was skateboarding or something in high school. And I think he was in Scream at the time. Um, yeah, I mean, uh, from all reports, he was always just, you know, like a super nice dude. And um, I mean, he and he was like, uh, I mean, he's a legend, I think, even before he was in screen. I mean, like I'm saying, when I went to these Greek drum lessons, there were kids that had like Dane Bramage t-shirts. I mean, they knew who Dave Grohl was. That's was so cool. Like 84 or something. Um but yeah, but yeah, we, I, I knew folks that, you know, went to high school with them and people really liked them. And I saw Scream a bunch of times in the end of high school and college. And one of the times I saw them was a positive four show and it was really, it was not well attended at all. And they were like very much in there. Like a, they became like, like a really intense hard rock band. I think that was maybe part of what happened is people didn't really, um, you know, 
go with them on their journey in the hard rock. <laughs> mm-hmm. But yeah, that's another thing I got to say. I even get at this point, like maybe I didn't understand this for a while, but I understand that Chisel is like an emo adjacent band for a lot of people. You know, I didn't realize like, that. Did you know? I didn't realize oh, yeah. that. And, 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 you know, I mean, this is, um, the way I sort of figured that out was when we, when we broke up or even before we broke up, there were a lot of folks from a lot of fans from Scandinavia. And then they would start, you know, that were interested in chisel. I'm not a lot of fans. There were a few people <laughs> from Scandinavia that were like into chisel. And then the other bands that they were into were all bands that I'm sure you've covered on this podcast. Interesting. And I was sort of like, oh, okay. They, it just depends on where you were. And then, um, you know, the, they might hear things in the music that we don't really notice, you know, um, that kind of references the fact that, you know, if, if there was a family tree, even though I think we're pretty far away on the family tree, other people don't see us. They don't hear us as being so far away. Right. Um, you know, and like, I, um, have you ever interviewed, uh, Patrick from fallout boy? No, I haven't. You should, man, because like, I, I just, I had to, I just this story, um, on them for the sun times years ago. And I was just like, I'm going to ask this guy. He's like, you know, into rights of spring. I mean, I know these guys were in like suburban Chicago um, punk bands slash possibly emo bands. And of course he's like, yeah, man, I love rights of spring. But, you know, it's like, I just think that people where they take their music in this genre that you're, you're covering um, like uh, there's a lot of room to, to work within that. And then, like I said, I think there are even, there are alternative universes of the family tree from that side of the discord family tree that are going a whole different direction. So I, you know, I just think it's, it's a term that maybe people have an aversion to, but it doesn't really, it's not necessarily, you know, I, I find a very neutral term at this point. Yeah. I, I told I've been, I'm sort of internalizing what you say. I I agree with you there. I love your alternative universe things. There's these places, things that happen, and they associate it with it. And for a, a word that people of are avert to, and also um, is misconstrued, seems to stay alive without any like it just kind of lives in the air like you said there's different universes that we're probably not understanding i don't know if that's too heady but i agree with you like it just it innately happens in a group of kids together and wherever they are and it it might not be connected and then they connect dots later and it sort of continues to live because people keep saying oh it's back it never left yeah right i mean also you the it probably has to do with how you first encountered it too right so for for you it helped describe music that you really liked right right? so you it helped you sort of organize that in your mind and 
the you know put that in the category of okay this is what i'm into um yeah and for other people it, it didn't do that so i don't know i it, it's not a term that i use a lot and i try not to use it in a dismissive way either <laughs> do you know what i mean yeah i just i just think it um you know for me i i try to remember that the like i you know the discord stuff that i was into some people use that term to describe it so maybe maybe i'm i've got definitely got a little bit of emo in me somewhere um, <laughs> oh, classic classic emo thank you for spending time loved it had a great time Tom. Huh?